Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine, hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rina Patani, who is a general internist at St. Michael's Hospital and is pursuing an MPH at Harvard. Hey, Rina, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Really great. So this is our first brand new episode of the new year. We've started off with two review episodes, and so this is our first brand new content. And we're going to be discussing a couple of outstanding topics as a result. So the first is neighborhood disadvantage and rehospitalization in the United States. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the discovery of a brand new class of antibiotics, which I promise will blow your mind at least three times during the segment. Of course, as always with our episode, we will wrap up at the end with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you two short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. Before we get started, I'm going to make my weekly plea for you to please take three minutes out of your time and fill out our survey online for feedback about the podcast. We really want to know what you think and how we can make it better for you. The URL is healthydebate.ca slash roundstablesurvey, all one word, roundstablesurvey. So why don't we get started? Rena, why don't you kick us off and talk to me about neighborhood disadvantage and rehospitalization rates? Okay, great. Thanks, Amol. So this was a paper that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in early December. And essentially, um, the goal of the paper was to try and look at whether there was any correlation between um, the socioeconomic status of a neighborhood of a patient and their 30-day risk of rehospitalization after being discharged from hospital. So essentially, this was a retrospective cohort study of U.S. patients who are on Medicare so generally patients who are age 65 and older. And the investigators took a 5% random sample of all of these patients um, and looked at those who had a discharge diagnosis of congestive heart failure, pneumonia, or myocardial infarction between 2004 and 2009. Then, once they acquired about 256,000 patients who met those inclusion and exclusion criteria, they tried to determine using their demographic information, their zip codes, and trace them back to what their neighborhoods, and they used a validated score called the Area Deprivation Index to determine the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood that the patient was coming from. Interesting. So the next step for them was to then break up each of the um, area deprivation index scores into categories of about 5% and look at rates of 30-day all-cause readmission for these patients. And so what did they find, Rena? Their findings were actually very interesting. Um, they, they observed that um, patients in the most disadvantaged 15% of neighborhoods, just to give you sort of a snapshot of what patients like that might look like, they were more likely to be black, they were more likely to be concurrently on Medicaid, they had greater rates of comorbid disease, and um, within the top 5% of that group, they were actually more likely to come from urban inner city areas, whereas the second top 5% and the third top 5% were actually more likely to be rural areas. Um, and these patients actually did have a notable increased rate of rehospitalization within 30 days that ranged from 22% to 27% with increasing deprivation score. That's in contrast to a baseline rate of readmission of about 21% in the remaining 85% of the population. So 
just so I understand, was there a dose response effect so that as the deprivation increased or the neighborhoods became more deprived, admissions increased linearly through that? Or was it was there more of a threshold kind of effect? So it was only within the top 15% of disadvantage that there was that dose response effect where increasing um, deprivation did lead to higher rates of readmission. But what's interesting is that if you look at the entire cohort, there's actually more of a threshold effect so that the impact of socioeconomic status of the neighborhood only really started to become a factor once you were looking at the 15% most disadvantaged neighborhoods and it stabilized thereafter. And um, the authors posited that this is actually consistent with the theories of many sociologists who say that there is a breaking point after which it's difficult for individuals to compensate for additional disadvantage, and that it's at that point that adverse outcomes really start to come to the fore. Interesting. And then just so I understand the effect on readmissions rate, uh, what was the absolute difference between the say the lowest, the control group, like the, the most advantaged group and the least advantaged group? So the baseline rate was about 21% in the um, least disadvantaged group, so the relatively more advantaged group, which comprised about 85% of the population. And then um, among the 15% of neighborhoods that were considered to be most disadvantaged, it was anywhere from 22 to 27%. So that's a delta that ranges from 1% to 6%. And so how do we how can we put that in context of how big of a difference that is or how much, how big of an effect this has? Yeah, so I think that's a great question because um, what was interesting is that the authors also looked at what that meant in terms of the greater risk imposed or conferred by coming from a neighborhood with a lower socioeconomic status. And um, essentially their conclusion was that that confers as great a risk as the pr presence of certain chronic illnesses, um, including, for example, COPD. Th those were at parity, um, as well as peripheral artery disease. And in fact, the risk that you have of readmission if you come from a, so a neighborhood with a lower socioeconomic status is higher than your risk of readmission if you have um, uncomplicated diabetes, for example. Interesting. So disadvantage could be considered a disease or could be thought of in as having an effect like a chronic condition. Absolutely. And, you know, the authors um, gave somewhat of a specific but broad definition for socioeconomic dis disadvantage. In their words, it was the state of being challenged by low income, limited education, and substandard living conditions for the person and for his or her neighborhood and social network. So really, they're getting at the fact that this is, it's a risk factor that's very complex, um, but has implications for individuals as well as their communities. Yeah, so I guess I have a couple questions about that. This paper seems to focus on the notion of neighborhood disadvantage specifically rather than individual socioeconomic status. So how did they measure neighborhood disadvantage and how do you sort of relate that neighborhood level to the individual patient readmission? Yeah, so... Um as I mentioned, they used a, a validated scoring system called the Area Deprivation Index that was established by an investigator by the name of Singh in 2003. And essentially, it was a tool that was developed using 17 different U.S. indicators that are derived from the census that include factors like the poverty of a family, the education level, housing opportunities, um, employment opportunities. 
And this tool, traditionally, the Area Deprivation Index has been used for resource planning and for health policy. Um, and so it sort of lended itself very well to trying to um, quantify the level of neighborhood advantage or disadvantage. So so how did they explain the 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 association and how is it how is it different than all of the other socioeconomic status work that has gone before it to say that we know that people who are at socioeconomic disadvantage have poorer health outcomes so what's novel here obviously this is contributing to a growing body of literature that is working on the idea that your zip your zip code matters as much or more than your genetic code. Um, so there is a, a lot of research being done on, you know, the quote-unquote social determinants of health, and this is contributing to that. And from the author's point of view, they mentioned that while it's this is intuitively attractive and accepted by most clinicians, it's often hard for healthcare providers to know how to implement interventions into assessing and uh, responding to low socioeconomic status for their patients. And they listed a number of barriers to that. Um, firstly, it may be a matter of time. It may be a matter of um, it being difficult to pose um, such sensitive questions to patients, or it might be that physicians and other healthcare providers feel powerless once they do identify that a patient is struggling from a low socioeconomic status. So um, essentially their, their hope with doing this was to demonstrate that by simply looking at the address of a patient and mapping the zip code to um, the neighborhood and quantifying the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood, um, healthcare providers and social workers can quickly identify which patients are at highest risk and would benefit from more probing questions into what supports might be needed, as well as pairing them um, more appropriately with transitional programs, discharge planning, and community supports. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I feel like that's something that a lot of clinicians do implicitly anyway when we talk to our patients and see where it is that they live and where they come from. Because um, it strikes me as a little bit interesting to say that clinicians have difficulty asking sensitive questions about you know, socioeconomic status, whereas we have no problems asking questions about bowel habits, right? Which I don't know which is more sensitive. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that there is a growing trend of um, really asking these questions and recognizing that they matter. There was a really nice article in the New England Journal of Medicine in the fall that maybe we could share on your website about how to take a good social history. And um, there's also resources that have been developed. There's an um, Ontario Medical Association document in office interventions into poverty, which talk about some simple questions that... Um, that can be asked in a very calm, non-judgmental way that can help identify patients who are at risk of being low socioeconomic status and help to link them with resources that could um, improve their circumstances. Absolutely. Okay, so um, maybe just to, to tie up our conversation, did these authors have any explanation for why neighborhood disadvantage affects individual patient outcomes? So I think that that is the most important question and limitation of the study is the fact that really it's difficult to tease apart whether this was a neighborhood effect, community effect, or whether there were individual patient level factors that contributed to the higher readmission rates in this group. At most, what we can see is a correlation. It's really hard to infer causality. And the study, the authors themselves admitted to the fact that this paper is vulnerable to the ecologic fallacy where um, we're really saying that here are the circumstances of the neighborhood, um, but we're 
we're sort of assuming that that is what's causing the elevated risk at the individual patient level and that that might be erroneous. So um, really, I think their goal, they, they were quite explicit throughout the paper that their goal was essentially just to say that this is a useful screening tool um, to use, the ADI, which is available on their website. Um, but they're not necessarily saying that that should be the definitive way to assess patients with regards to their risk. Okay, great. Why don't you wrap up and tell us the major takeaway points from this paper? Sure. So um, I think the bottom line of the paper is that living in a neighborhood that is um, disadvantaged from a socioeconomic status point of view um, does confer risk for readmission to hospital within 30 days. That is um, equal in magnitude to the risk that is imposed by other chronic diseases like COPD and peripheral arterial disease. And so um, at a minimum, screening patients for um, an assessment of their neighborhood socioeconomic status might help to link patients with resources in the community that can support them to be in a community dwelling state for longer and to have um, healthier lifestyles. Perfect. All right. So let's change gears and move to the basic science world, a discovery that has been generating substantial buzz is the finding of a new antibiotic called taxobactin, which is a new class of cell wall inhibitor that was discovered by researchers and published in Nature. So let's talk about that. Sounds good. So, Mo, maybe you could um, open things up by telling us a bit about why antibiotic discovery is so hard. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Actually, the the history of antibiotic discovery, you know, I think it's fairly familiar that in the 40s, the initial class of antibiotics, penicillins, was introduced and had this dramatic effect on previously untreatable conditions. And basically between the 40s and the 60s was the golden age of antibiotic discovery, largely through discovering naturally occurring substances that could then be manipulated chemically to make them more effective for treating human disease. The thing that's really interesting about antimicrobial drug discovery is that for a a number of scientific and economic reasons, we've actually been wildly unsuccessful at creating new drugs. So from a scientific point of view, a couple of findings are important. The first is, and this is the first thing that totally blew my mind when I read this, is that 99% of all bacteria species in external environments cannot be grown in laboratory environments. So all of the bugs that we grow in the lab account for only about 1% of the naturally occurring uh, bacteria. That was a complete shock to me, and I did an undergrad in microbiology. I had no idea that it was so difficult to grow organisms. So that suggests that there is a whole range of antimicrobial substances that are produced by these bacteria that we just don't know anything about. And we've been unable to uh, acquire them in the lab because our bugs just don't grow in the lab. So that's one important limitation to why it's difficult to study antibiotics. The second thing is that when we started taking synthetic approaches to developing antibiotics, we've actually been relatively unsuccessful. So there's been a fair amount of investment in sequencing the genomes of 
pathogens and then trying to develop targeted therapies against those bugs. And it's really been incredibly challenging to do. And there have been no real successes of that kind of endeavor over the last 10, 15 years. And I guess it's concerning because that's coming at the same time as um, increasing rates of antibiotic resistance. So yeah, exactly. It's, it's a difficult confluence of effects. And then there's also the economics of antibiotics. So a successful antibiotic does itself out of a job, right? Because it's a curative agent. So it's not the kind of drug which you can, which patients are going to take for long periods of time. Furthermore, it's difficult to predict when resistance is going to develop to your drug. And if resistance develops, that can really kill the effectiveness of a product. And then finally, there's so much public health effort and and consciousness towards antimicrobial stewardship that if anything, people are trying to use less and less antibiotics. So all of these things make the economics of developing antibiotics relatively unfavorable. Absolutely. Those are really interesting points. So um, can you talk us through a bit the steps that were taken by these investigators to isolate this new antibiotic? Yeah, I'm going to break it down into four categories. So it seemed like the first thing that they did was tackled this fundamental problem of the difficulty growing microorganisms in the lab. So they, they figured out how to grow all these uncultured bugs. So what they did was using this ingenious device called an eye chip, which is a chip with many different channels on it. And what they did was they diluted soil, which was... The, the naturally occurring environment for these organisms. And they put the soil, dilute soil on the chip so that there's only one bacterial cell per channel in the chip. So all these tiny, tiny channels with a single bacterial cell. Then they cover the chip with two semi-permeable membranes and put it back in the soil in its naturally occurring environment. So this allows all the nutrients and growth factors in the soil to get into the chip, but keeps the bacteria in their individual channels. And by using this mechanism, they can get close to growing 50% of organisms instead of 1%. So that's sort of the first big and really, it seems simple, but it's like seems like a dramatic breakthrough. Absolutely. That's a substantial delta. Yes, exactly. Uh, so that's step one. Step two is then to screen for antimicrobial substances. So the whole fundamental issue with these antibiotics is that bacteria secrete these chemicals to try and compete with the other bacteria in their environment, right? And so they took extracts from 10,000 isolates of these new organisms, and they screened them for antimicrobial activity against a very common and important human pathogen, Staph aureus. And what they found was there's a new species that they discovered that they've called Eleftheria terrae. But so this new species showed good activity against Staph aureus. And so they then used a variety of mechanisms to try and isolate that compound that was causing the effect of killing Staph aureus. So that's step two. They discovered the structure of that compound using nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which to me sounds like an MRI for molecules, which sounds pretty cool. Um, that could be like so wildly incorrect. I feel like real scientists are listening to this and shuddering at home, but this is what get you get when a clinician reads nature. Um, 
And they called this new compound taxobactin. So that's step two is screen for antimicrobial substances and find the one that works. And then step three is to actually study that drug in vitro. So they found that taxobactin has potent activity against gram-positive organisms. And they sort of tried to figure out how does it work. Interestingly, they found that it has potent activity against the really resistant versions of Staph aureus, so against MRSA. And it also has potent activity against species of Staph aureus that are not very susceptible to vancomycin. So there's a group of Staph aureus bugs that have intermediate resistance to vancomycin, which is currently our best treatment for Staph aureus uh, or for resistant Staph aureus. And this drug has good activity against even those resistant bugs. So that's really encouraging. It is encouraging. And so this was, you mentioned earlier, related to the cell wall. Can you describe that a bit more? Yeah. So they found that this drug inhibits cell wall synthesis by binding to precursors of lipids that are used in making the various components of the cell wall, peptidoglycan and tachoic acid. So then, um, I mean, it, all of that sounds very dense. And I think probably most clinicians are wondering um, how this translated from the lab to any in vivo testing. Was there information provided in that regard? Sure. So step four is to then take it from the lab to the uh, living organism. And so they studied it in mice models of infection, and they really looked at three different mice models. They looked at uh, mice that were infected with MRSA, they looked at neutropenic mice, and they looked at mice that were infected with strep pneumoniae in the lungs. So one of their models is to inject uh, MRSA into the peritoneum of mice at a dose that has 90% fatality, and then they give a dose of the antibiotic. And so when they gave a dose of this antibiotic, all of the mice lived, uh, as opposed to 90% dying without any antibiotic. Um, so they basically showed that it's highly efficacious in all of their mice models. That's incredible. Yeah, I think what's amazing to me, so first of all, is that there's so much work that went into this study to start from sort of identifying new organisms in the soil and then identifying which antimicrobial substances are secreted by those new organisms and then studying the one that works against Staph aureus and determining its structure and then figuring out how it attacks cell walls and then figuring out okay let's try and see if it works in vivo and dosing and all of that drug delivery mechanism it's just an enormous amount of work that has gone into this and it's such an impressive piece of work Um, that's really potentially profoundly important clinical implication definitely and what's the reason that they are hypothesizing that this antibiotic won't develop resistance yeah so This comes from our understanding of actually vancomycin, another drug that treats Staph aureus that has relatively low rates of resistance. So vancomycin has been around for decades, and relatively few bugs are resistant to vancomycin. And they think it's because vancomycin targets lipids similar to this drug. The rationale for that is that antibiotics that target proteins are susceptible to mutations in those proteins. And mutations in those proteins come from mutations in DNA, which happen very frequently in uh, bacteria. Whereas lipids are actually synthesized by a combination of a variety of organic molecules, and so they are not prone to that same rate of mutation. So 
antimicrobial agents that target lipids are less prone to the development of resistance. That is really interesting. So do you think we're seeing the beginnings of an antimicrobial revolution? That's a great question. So I hope so. Um, I hope that this new method of understanding and growing microbes from our soil leads to a whole host of new discoveries. Uh, And I feel like that's, you know, I hope it's the start of something great. I hope so too. So why don't I wrap up and summarize by saying that this incredibly impressive piece of academic work has shown the discovery of a new antibiotic that is active against gram-positive organisms and may not be susceptible to the development of resistance um, and is probably a couple of years away from use in humans and hopefully heralds the beginning of a new era of drug discovery going back to the original method of discovering new antibiotics, which is trolling the soil for naturally existing organisms and compounds. That's very exciting. That's a great paper. I totally agree. It's a great paper. Okay, let's wrap up and do our good stuff segment. So Rena, what caught your attention from the world of medicine? Sure. So um, I wanted to share an article in The Guardian by um, the Nobel Prize winning Amartya Sen that appeared on January 6th of this year that talks about universal health care and the fact that um, it is and it is, in fact, an affordable dream. He uses case studies in several countries to show that not only is it possible, but that it can have um, dramatic impacts that extend beyond just uh, just health. So it's an investment worth making on a global scale. Oh, that's great. You've really done a social determinants of health tour de force today. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. <laughs> okay, perfect. So my good stuff recommendation is an article in the Globe and Mail by the prolific Andre Picard, which is entitled, What's Really to Blame for ER Congestion? Effectively, Picard indicts Canadian healthcare for blaming influenza for overburdening the emergency room and hospitals and causing congestion which it certainly has. But he just says that our system is completely illogical in how it responds to that, in the sense that at the busiest time of the year during influenza season, which happens to coincide with the winter holidays, the healthcare system does not ramp up its capacity, but if anything, it scales it back. There are fewer staff, more physicians on holiday, And he argues that we really need to have a better approach to managing these patients. And he argues that we need to think of better ways to expand capacity to deal with what is a very predictable phenomenon. So I thought it was a really important and eloquently argued angry article that was worth reading. It was a great article and that's a great recommendation. Okay, uh, thanks, Rena. It was really fun to chat with you. You too. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. 